just to welcome you all again. It's lovely to see you all here. Thank you for coming out on these icy nights. It's not easy to get around, but I appreciate the effort that you're making. Um, just a final reminder, we have notes for tonight that are at the back of the church. So if you've come into church and have taken your seat without the notes, please take a couple of moments just now to, uh, to pick up the notes. And uh, as I said at the beginning, we're going to go through a series which we call Old Testament Survey or Big Picture of the Bible. Normally it's going to be the third and fourth Sunday evenings of the month up till about the end of May. And what I hope to do during this series is simply give you the big picture of the, the message, the storyline of the Old Testament. We're going to, if you like, take a photograph or a snapshot of each book of the Old Testament and show how it unpacks its own truths, but then show how each book leads into the big storyline. What is the big storyline? Lots of people don't know that the Bible has a storyline from creation to the new creation. And I hope that we'll get excited together as we uncover that storyline and realize actually that as saints of God today, we are very much part of that ongoing storyline. The Old Testament is a mystery to a lot of people, um, so I hope that uh, some of the mystery will be removed. So, let me encourage you to take your sheets now. Um, I can't promise to move through these sheets in any kind of uh, logical or coherent fashion. I tend to do these things a little bit without notes, so uh, you'll kind of have to find your way through the notes as I waffle on for a little while. Um, I'm going to be doing an awful lot of talking tonight. Hopefully in subsequent weeks we'll have question and answer times where you can raise whatever questions you've got during certain periods of the evening, and I will try to answer them as best I can. If it's a particularly difficult question, I will not answer it on the night. I will wait till the following week and get my concordances and Bible studies out and all that kind of thing and try to answer the questions. So, um, we're on page one, uh, the Bible. Why study the Bible, I think, would be a good place to start. I'm just going to give a very brief introduction to the Old Testament. And then my hope tonight, before seven o'clock, is to tell you the whole story of the Old Testament from start to finish. And if you're still awake by then, you deserve a Blue Peter badge or something better than that. But just to begin with, why do we study the Bible? And the simple reason is because we believe the Bible is inspired. Um, the, the Greek term that's used in the New Testament for it actually is theopneustos, God-breathed. Um, this idea of breathed is where we get our term pneumatic. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've ever been to Stonehaven, that beautiful area, with the, the coastal area um, just down south. Um, when you come into Stonehaven, it says, uh, Stonehaven, the birthplace of the famous inventor, I don't even know if it's A.W. Thompson, somebody like that, who invented the pneumatic tire. So you've seen that word pneumatic before. And that word pneumatic begins with pneuma, which is the Greek word for breath or wind or spirit. That's the same word that's used in the New Testament to describe the inspiration of Scripture. It is God-breathed. What we believe about the Bible is that it has human authors, and every human author brought their own personality to bear on the book that they wrote, brought their own historical context. Every book has a historical context. There's a lot of humanity in the book, human beings saying the things that they want to say. But every word that is said in Scripture by the human writer is also driven. It is directed by God. It is God-breathed. So if you like, the, the human writer is the ship with the sail... And God is blowing that ship wherever he wants it to go. That's a kind of simplified version of it, but we believe that the Bible is both human. In other words, it's, it's not just this dictation. Muslims believe that uh, the Quran was dictated to them, an angel just appeared to Muhammad, he dictated it, and Muhammad just wrote it down as quickly as he could. No, we believe that God used human character, used human situations, used humanity, um, poured out humanity in Scripture, but the Bible is God-breathed. He directed human writers wherever he wanted them to go. And we believe that the Bible is inerrant, that every word of the Scripture is true. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5:18, not a jot or a tittle 
will be removed until all is accomplished. And this jot and tittle is actually a, a reference to the Hebrew language. Um, a jot was actually their kind of letter Y, which was the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle actually was just a little piece that came out from a letter. You know, if, if you're teaching a child to write joint, they do their D like this and then they put a little flick out. That, in a Hebrew context, that's a tittle, that little flick that comes out in a Hebrew context. So Jesus is saying, not the most minuscule piece of all that has been written in the Scripture will fail to come to pass. So Jesus gave us rock-solid reasons to believe every word of Scripture. And we study the Bible not just to grow intellectually, but to grow as Christians. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And this is a really important issue. Because you remember when Jesus came into our world, he had to deal with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees rejected him, which was stunning, because these Pharisees knew their Torah. They knew their Old Testament in an intellectual sense, in a pure knowledge sense, better than any of us. I mean, they recited it. If you've ever seen the Jews at the Wailing Wall, they'll be going back and forward, mumbling to themselves, what they're mumbling to themselves are verses from the Torah, which they've memorized. You know, Bereshit bara al-Khimat Hashemayim Echet Aharat. So Genesis 1 verse 1 in Hebrew. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They will be muttering that kind of thing to themselves as they go back and forward at the wall. They knew their scriptures. But they crucified the Son of God. And that's really the thing about reading scripture. We don't read scripture just to grow in head knowledge. And sometimes, let's face it, Bible bashers get a name for good reason. We use the scripture as something to bash other people over the head with. That's not why God gave us the scriptures. God gave us the scripture so that we would grow in our knowledge and love for the God who made us. And there's a world of difference between reading the scriptures to grow in head knowledge so that we can kind of rhyme off all the titles for Christ in the New Testament and reading the scriptures, as Don Carson puts it in his wonderful devotional book, For the Love of God. There's a sense in which we come and we place ourselves under the scriptures and say, Lord, teach me today. Teach me what you want me to know. I come by faith and I want to grow in my love for you and my devotion for you. It's people who read the scripture like that who get the most out of these living words of God. But of course, we need to know the content of scripture before we can feed in that sense, before we can be spiritually nourished. And this big picture course is all about gleaning more content while acknowledging the danger in just knowing. Now, just to say briefly about the layout of the Old Testament, God has chosen in the Scriptures to speak to us in a variety of different kinds of literature. And it's very important that we understand different types of literature and how they work. For example, 40% of Scripture, 40% is written in some kind of poetic language. And you can't read poetry like you read a bus timetable. You can't read poetry like you read a work of history. Poetry is full of vivid emotions, vivid pictures. The trees of the fields clap their hands as the Lord comes to judge the earth. We're not meant to take that literally, that the trees of the field will literally go, Hooray, Lord. It's a vision, it's an image of creation rejoicing in the God of judgment. 40% of scripture is poetry. It's difficult to get your handle on, but God wants to engage with our emotions because we are emotional beings. He wants our hearts to be moved. As a deer, as a dehydrated deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts after you, O God. Isn't that a much better way of saying it than you better love God? My soul thirsts after you. It longs after you, my God, Psalm 63. So 40% is poetry. Um, There's a lot of story in there, history, adventure, tragedy, romance, the full works. If you're worried about the romance piece, of course, uh, um, books like Ruth are full of romance. Ruth and Boaz, that's a real romantic encounter. The Song of Solomon is about romance. A couple of other things. 
It's not primarily about Christ and the church. But there's lots of story in the Old Testament. We, we get into get caught up in the story. So um, it's interesting when you go to African Christians, um, a lot of African Christians we came across in Ethiopia, they loved the Old Testament stories. They didn't really want the Apostle Paul and the epistles. They loved the stories. They got into Moses. They got into Joshua. Stories convey truth in their own special way. You get caught up in the characters. You feel the emotion behind the story. And God has put an awful lot of story in Scripture so that story would move us in its own particular way. We also have law, which tends to be the hardest bit of the Old Testament to read. You get into your kind of Exodus, Leviticus, law codes, numbers. Those are hard bits to read. But law, of course, brings rules and regulations, covenant agreements between God and his people. This is how I want you to live, says God. And the people agree, yes, Lord, we will obey your law and keep your covenants. Very important parts of Scripture, but not easy to get through. Then we have biographies, which essentially are the Gospels. Um, four different Gospels, of course, bringing four different angles on the life of Jesus. And on Sunday mornings now, of course, we're doing the Gospel of Mark. Um, and we will find when we come to New Testament times that, of course, every story and the order in which the stories are put in these Gospels are, are skillfully chosen. The Gospel writer doesn't just say, here's everything I can remember about Jesus, I'll stick it down in a book. No, each story is carefully chosen of all the thousands of stories these guys could have picked about Jesus, and they are arranged in a sequence so that the connection between one story to another is part of the meaning of the passage. So we have biographies as well. We have letters, of course, which we're probably most familiar with. Things like Romans, you know, this correspondence to a church. And uh, often Paul in his letters is just very logical. Here's an argument that I'm developing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And often in these epistles, you just need to take them apart piece by piece, phrase by phrase. Here's the logical build-up of the argument, and that's how I get to know the truth of God's Word. When you're in story, you're looking at characters, you're looking at plots, you're looking at plot development. When you're in poetry, you're going to vivid images. What's the color behind the story? So we've got to treat Scripture as it wants to be treated, with all these different kinds of literature that it uses. And my favorite kind of literature in the Old Testament is apocalyptic, because it's just so bizarre. And in Revelation, you'll have beasts with ten heads coming out of the sea and so on. And again, we're not meant to take that literally. I, you know, I don't think we're waiting for some beast to come out of the sea with ten heads. The apocalyptic is, is using um, often bizarre images to get our attention and to say things about, you know, ten heads. A beast with ten heads is probably ten rulers that will come in the future and so on and so forth. So again, when somebody asks you, do, do you believe the Bible is true? Yes. Do you believe the Bible is literal in every word that it uses? Absolutely not. We need to think about genre. You know? So when the trees of the field clap their hands, do they literally do that? No. That's poetic license. When there are two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life, literal or figurative? Question mark. We will come to that next week. But I just want you to get into the issue of genre. Is the writer trying to be literal or is he trying to be figurative? When Luke in the book of Acts says the apostles went from this town to this town in this year, you know, you can, you, it's nailed on. He's being historical, he's saying a real history. You've got to let the writer tell you whether they're being literal or metaphorical. And just some very basics about the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written between 1500 and 400 BC. So the length of time it took to bring the Old Testament together is way longer than the length of time it took to bring the New Testament together. 
from 1500 BC to about 400 BC. And there are 39 books in the Old Testament. So really the Bible is not a book. It is a library of books. Um, But the fascinating thing about Scripture... And when people keep on challenging me about Scripture, like, how, how can you believe this Old Testament story? How can you believe that Israel were really here? How can you believe this when there's a lack of archaeological proof and all this kind of thing? The one thing I keep coming back to when I look at Scripture as, as to whether I really believe it as a Christian today is how beautifully, how magnificently the Old Testament foreshadows the New Testament. And I hope we will see that in an amazing way. So you have an individual writer like Moses or like Ezra, and they are writing to their own day. They're writing to their own people what the Spirit is inspiring them to write. But the Spirit is using what Ezra is writing and what Moses is writing, what the prophets are writing, to point beyond themselves often to a future day. And I hope you'll see again and again how the Old Testament points to Christ. And when we get into stories, for example, like Israel's rescue from Egypt, one of the great stories of the Old Testament, the Passover, You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see how wonderfully that passage points to the story of salvation, to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain for us. And when you start seeing these connections between Old and New Testament, the whole scriptures just light up. They do for me anyway. And I hope they light up for you as we go through it. Okay? So that's a little bit of a basic background to the Old Testament. Um, What I want to do now is, you might like to put your notes to one side actually, because I'm going to freewheel for a little while now. Between now and 7 o'clock, I hope to tell you the story of the Old Testament, give or take 700 verses or so. So, um, the story of the Old Testament is a little bit like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1, verse 1. Um, It's actually a title for Genesis 1. Um, Genesis 1, verse 2 doesn't immediately follow. He didn't create the heavens and the earth, and then suddenly the earth was without form and void. No, the earth was without form and void is the start of the story. God created the heavens and the earth is the title. The earth was without form and void is the start of the story. How the earth got to that situation without form and void, we don't know. And there's a lot of issues that Scripture is silent on. There's a lot of creation issues that Scripture is very silent on. The writer is very choosy about what he wants to give us as uh, an account of creation. And of course, as we heard this morning, it's not a scientific account of creation. We cannot look at Genesis 1 through the lens of 21st century science. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When that beginning was, the Bible does not say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why did God make anything? Often you might have heard the story that God made people because he was lonely and he needed human fellowship. No, there is nothing lonely about God. God is complete in his being. He is the sum of all perfections. He dwells in perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He put creation together for the praise of his glory. And the whole story of creation is to the praise of his glory. And Peter will tell us that you and I were saved to worship him for the praise of his glory. Colossians 1.16 says that you and I were made for Jesus for the praise of his glory. That is why God got the whole thing going, for the praise of his glory. Genesis 1 shows us that God made creation to be very orderly. It moves from chaos, that this earth is just dark and empty and formless, and the Spirit of God is hovering over it. He goes from chaos to order, just as in the story of salvation. He takes us chaotic souls, just as he took Israel, chaotic, lost in slavery in Egypt, and moved them into order, moved them into an army, moved them into the people of God. God is always doing this, moving people from chaos to order. Over six days, what God makes in day one, he fills in day four. What God makes in day two, he fills in day five. What God makes in day three, he fills in day six. 
So if we're looking for the six days of Genesis to be six literal 24-hour days, you can believe that if you like. I'm not there personally, but I think there's a program going on here where God is taking on a human week, and he will later introduce people to the idea of six days of work and one day of rest. And I think that's exactly what he's doing in a figurative sense. He's doing six days of work and one day of rest as a paradigm for human beings. Whether they're six literal 24-hour days or not, I don't think is an issue. And I don't think the original author was thinking about it as an issue. Um, He doesn't create the sun and the moon, for example, till day four, which are the markers by which we tell signs and seasons and years and so on. Okay? That's just my view. If you don't believe in that, that's fine. This is not one of the core doctrines of the Bible. It is a core doctrine, though, to believe that God created the universe and he created it out of nothing. So he creates the universe, and the peak of what he creates is mankind, made on the sixth day, the very last thing that he makes. Whether man is the last thing that he really makes in sequence or not is not the issue. The issue is that the, that the literature is put together in such a way that man is seen as the last thing. He is, he is the person coming into God's temple. Genesis 1 constructs the world as God's temple. And man is God's image bearer. The last thing that the people put into ancient temples was the image of God. And man is the last thing that God puts into his earthly temple, the place where he will have his dwelling. And it's man, his image bearer. And this is the first lines of poetry in Scripture, Genesis 1.26. God made man in his own image, and the image of God he made them, male and female, he made them. So clearly, man is the peak of creation. And whatever Dawkins and his phonies will keep on telling us that man is just another animal, we must refute from Scripture. He is not just another animal. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. He is made in the image of God. That means he is basically God's representative on earth. He is told to be on earth, to rule the earth, to look after the earth in a way God would look after it. So we must look after creation graciously and with understanding and with care for the animal kingdom and so on and so forth. So God made man in his own image to rule over the birds of the air and the beasts of the sea and so on. But you know, very quickly, rather than the Bible spending loads of time on how God went about creation, it goes very quickly into relationship. And uh, in Genesis 1, if you like, you get the panorama of God creating the heavens and the earth, then you get God and Adam. And it's very clear that God wants a warm relationship with Adam. He, he, He puts him in a beautiful garden, tells him to tend that garden, gives him satisfying work. He tells him to name the animals, gives him authority over the animal kingdom. He creates woman for him. What a lovely thing for God to do to create a woman for a man. He was alone. He had no companion that was up to his standards, if you would like, from all the animal kingdom. He created a woman to be with him. God loves Adam, and he walks with Adam in the cool of the day. He wants relationship with him. But it is also very clear that God is the moral guardian of the universe, and that Adam is under God's authority. God has creator's rights over humanity. And so God sets up this test. Here is a tree, the knowledge of good and evil, Adam. And uh, you can eat of all the other luscious trees I've given you. But on the day you eat of that tree, Adam, you will surely die. Not die physically, because when he ate the fruit, he didn't die physically, but die spiritually, banished from the presence of God. And spiritual death is much worse than physical death. Banished from the presence of God. It seems in Genesis 2 that just Adam is around when God gives that instruction, so God has made Adam head of his home. And it's Adam's responsibility to pass on the law of God to Eve. So it's desperately cunning of the serpent then in Genesis 3 to come in and reverse the order. The serpent doesn't go to Adam as head of the home, he goes to Eve. 
And he says, Eve, that tree, it looks lovely, doesn't it? Did God really say? And the thing that Satan loves to do in our lives is make us doubt God's word, doubt his promises. And of course, Satan works on that thing in humanity that loves physical appearance. She saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and it was useful for for gaining wisdom. You could be like God. You could be your own God, which is the heart of what sin means. Becoming our own God. Living life by our own moral authority rather than God's moral authority. We reject God's moral authority and go our own way. So Eve wants a bit of that for herself. She sees the fruit. She thinks she can become like a God. And she takes a bite. She brings it over to Adam. Now, of course, Adam at the city said, Eve, God told us you are not to eat from that tree. But Adam, of course, is your apathetic, laid-back male. The kind of male who comes into his home every night and rather than taking any responsibility for the house, just sits up with his feet up with a television remote control. Adam is the kind of guy. And he just sits back, takes the fruit, everything's rosy in paradise, and then something extraordinary happens to humanity. They first of all become morally aware. They become frightened of each other. God blames, Eve blames Adam. Adam blames Eve. They both blame the serpent. There's an estrangement now between man and man. And worse than that, there's an estrangement between man and God that has never been there before. And when the Lord God comes for his normal walk in the cool of the day, which they had enjoyed so much up to then, the man and woman are hiding, ashamed in their nakedness. They are now, in a sense, more morally aware than they have been before. But they have crossed a line. They have disobeyed God's commands. And God's judgment is sweeping. He judges the man. He judges the woman. Your pain will increase in childbirth. The man, you will, by the... The sweat of your brow, toil the ground now. It seems up to that point that work had been easy, work had been joyful. From that time, work would be full of toil. Um, Childbirth was going to be full of toil as well. Um, He comes to the serpent, and in Genesis 3.15, it's a fascinating verse, which is what they sometimes call the first gospel. Um, God says to the serpent, you are cursed. You're going to be crawling on the ground for the rest of your life. And clearly, New Testament points to that serpent as being Satan. Satan is cursed at that moment. And God says that there's going to be enmity between the serpent and uh, a woman's offspring. The child that will come from a woman. And uh, the scripture says that the serpent would bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. And the offspring of the woman would crush his head. And when you see the big panorama of scripture opening out you see how incredibly Genesis 3.15 points forward to the cross. Even the very details of the cross where Satan would bruise Christ on the cross. To the very point of having nails through his feet, his feet would be bruised. But through the cross, it is at the very moment of defeat and shame and death on the cross that Christ crushes Satan's head. The serpent's head is crushed. So right away in Genesis 3, the story of salvation is set out for those that have eyes to see it. But anyway, God comes and he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. This is what the the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death. They have to be banished from the presence of God. God puts a a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. That's interesting in itself. Mankind should not reach out to take the tree of life and live forever in their sinful state. That would be disastrous for sin to prosper like that and for the human beings to be stuck in sinfulness forever and ever and ever. That would be disastrous. Don't reach out your hand to the tree of life. Which makes you wonder, was mankind able to live forever to begin with? Why could they not take from the tree of life? 
But clearly God does not want mankind to remain in his sinful state, but he is banished. And we see from then on the story of Genesis 4 to 11 is just the downward spiral of sin. And the first brothers come together, Cain and Abel. And uh, Cain and Abel, they bring their offerings to God. Cain brings just some of the fruit from the field. But Abel brings the fat from his flock. And God is more pleased with Abel's offering than with Cain's. Is that because God is more partial to animal sacrifice than to fruit and veg? I don't think so. It's that Abel brought the best. He brought the fat of his offering. And Cain just brought some of the fruit. He was half-hearted about his worship of God. God was not pleased with Cain because he can't cope with half-hearted worship. As later the prophets will say, don't bring me a lame lamb. Bring me your best. God deserves our best. And of course, Cain is very downcast because he feels rejected by God. And so he seeks an opportunity right in the fourth chapter of the Bible to murder his own brother. Seeks a quiet place where he thinks God cannot see him. And how many times we think that God cannot see us. He kills his brother. And God comes looking for Cain. And Cain denies ever doing it. So he's a liar into the bargain. But Cain is now banished further from the presence of God and he becomes a restless wanderer. And this downward spiral of sin continues with Cain and all of his descendants. Down the line, we have this man called Lamech who is a descendant of Cain. And Lamech is just the epitome of sin. He has two beautiful women on either arm, which is kind of you know, picturing the ideal self-made postmodern James Bond kind of man. Ada and Zilla are the two women, beautiful and cheerful, you know. I have my two girls on either arm. And of course, that's totally destroying God's plan of one man, one woman, monogamous marriage. Two women. And, and this man is boasting. He is boasting. He's saying, um, I've, I, I've killed a man just for striking me, a young man just for hurting me. And he boasts about his killing. Lamech, he is the man. He lives life his own way. He is the captain of his own soul. He is the ultimate of what God despises of a sinful human race. And so by Genesis 6, we have this awful situation where every inclination in the heart of man is only evil all the time. That's pretty widespread. God is sick of the humanity that he has made. And you can see again and again that the big issue in Genesis 1 to 11 is the issue of sin in the face of a holy God. And so God judges his creatures. And the story of Noah and his ark, we use it as a children's bedtime story. How did we ever get to that? I mean, it's nice to look at the cuddly animals, but this is not a cuddly animal story. This is a story of wipeout of all of creation. It's a decreation story. And God finds a man called Noah. He is the only righteous man left on the earth. And for a hundred years, he says, Noah, I want you to build the mother of all boats. And I want you to take your family into that boat. And of course, Noah is called to respond to God by faith. Build a boat, God, when it hardly ever rains, let alone, I've never seen a flood. God was, Noah was asked to just take God at his word, to trust God that his plan of salvation really would work, just as we are asked, just to trust God that a man who died 2,000 years ago on a cross actually has the power to save us from sin. Just trust me, God says, trust me. That's exactly what Noah does. Builds a boat for 100 years, probably while he's being ridiculed by neighbors around. But then suddenly the day comes, he and his wife go in, he takes his three sons and their wives into the ark, eight people in the ark, that's all that's left. And God shuts the door. Because salvation and judgment belong to God. And then the rain starts to fall like it's never fallen before. And we see this um, day after day, the rain, the deluge comes. Even it's, It seems that the ground itself opens up and lets forth its waters. Whether the whole geology and framework of the whole world changed at that moment, I don't know. But for those who doubt that the flood story is a real story, it's fascinating to notice that just about every culture from north, south, east, and west has a flood story in their history. And incredible, even the Welsh have a flood story in their history. I'm going to share it with you when we come to the story of Noah. 
But everybody has, a story of a, uh, has some story of a flood and a guy who gets saved through a boat. Right? Everybody's got it. So where did that story come from? Probably from Scripture. Noah and his family of eight in the boat, and as the rains fall, and there's this deluge, and every creature on the face of the earth drowns. And you just think, you know, this notion of hell and God's judgment, it's real. And Jesus says in Matthew, doesn't he, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. There will be a deluge of judgment. The message of the gospel is escape from the judgment to God's salvation. Trust God's word if you want to escape from the coming judgment. But God is deadly serious about his antipathy to sin. He cannot stand sin in any shape or form. And he must judge it. So every living creature on the face of the earth is drowned while this little boat bobs above the flood. And then, of course, the waters decrease. Noah gets out of the boat. And the first thing he does, fascinating, he offers a sacrifice. An animal sacrifice. And we read that God smelt the aroma of the animal sacrifice and it was pleasing and God promised not to to send a flood to judge the earth again. And this is the first uh, time in the Bible that this idea of propitiation comes across. That a sacrifice of blood appeases the wrath of God and God removes judgment. That's exactly what your salvation is about. You and I deserve to be judged for our sin. But a sacrifice has been provided for us, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And his sacrifice is a sweet-smelling savor to God, and God removes his judgment from us. It's right back in Genesis 8 slash 9. Okay, right back at the beginning of Scripture, these principles are up and in front of us. Anyway, Noah comes out of the boat, everything seems fine, a rainbow in the sky, God's not going to judge the earth again with a big flood. But you can still see that there's something desperately wrong with humanity. For even Noah, even the best of us, the most righteous of us, he gets drunk. Gets drunk in his own vineyard, he exposes himself in front of his kids, and you realize that humanity is still a nightmare. The issue of sin has not been solved. Then we get to Genesis 11, where people get together. They are not fulfilling their creation mandate to go out and multiply across the earth. They're sticking together. They're combining their sinful forces, and they want to build their tower, the Tower of Babel, so that they can get to God by their own efforts, by their own work, by their own strength. And this is another of the great themes of Scripture, the difference between religion and the grace of Christianity. Religion is people by their own effort and strength trying to get to God. I will do it my way. Christianity is based on God coming to us by grace in Jesus Christ. And if you like, you can compare the Tower of Babel, human effort trying to get to God, with Jacob's ladder. Do you remember Jacob's ladder and the dream that Jacob had where he saw angels ascending and descending from heaven? This is heaven coming to us to provide salvation for us. It's a salvation by works versus salvation by grace. We can only be saved by grace. Anyway, Tower of Babel gets together and and God, he hates what mankind are doing. They're doing it in their own independence. They're doing it without any thought of him. So God says, enough. And he comes and confuses their languages. They can't keep their building project going. It leaves it half done. And uh, people are just scattered across the face of the earth. And at the end of Genesis 11... The camera goes from this wide screen angle, if you like, of all the nations. This is how God is dealing with all the nations. And suddenly the camera moves in, moves in very, very tight to one man because God will now start his plan of salvation. And he starts his plan of salvation with a man called Abraham. And there's nothing particularly good about Abraham. We don't know anything about Abraham. He's a complete pagan from a pagan background. But God chooses him because God chooses him. God is sovereign in the plan of salvation. 
And he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, and he gives Abraham three promises which set the base for the storyline of Scripture. If you take nothing else out of tonight, get this. This is the basis for the rest of the storyline of Scripture. He gives Abraham three promises. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, which in Old Testament terms will become the nation of Israel, but in our New Testament terms is the people of God, Christians. I'm going to make you into a great nation, the kingdom of God. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to take you to a land, a promised land. You're going to settle in this promised land, which, of course, again, for the Old Testament people, was the nation of of Israel, the land of Canaan. But for us, of course, our promised land is still to come. But you can see how these Old Testament themes are foreshadowing all the time what still lies ahead of us. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to take you to a land. And through you, through one of your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is going to do something universal. He's going to bring universal salvation through one of Abraham's family members. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, we follow the storyline, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down, Judah, and this royal, righteous line will follow all the way down through the Old Testament. And this is the line that will lead to Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. And it is Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the basic storyline. It is he who's taking us to our promised land. It is he who is making a great people, a kingdom of God. So that's God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to speed up a lot now because it's 20 to 7 already. Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we follow the ups and downs of this family. The, the lovely thing about Genesis and this family is that the family is a complete screw-up. I mean, they're all a mess, all of them, you know? Even Judah, who is the man who will, be, who will carry this kind of royal line that will lead eventually to Christ, Judah, we first find him in Genesis, and, and he's, he's raping Tamar. That's where this family comes from. There's gross favoritism in these families, you know? Um, so we have Jacob favoring Joseph above all the other sons, making all the other sons jealous. Gross favoritism. Because Jacob and Esau, of course, had been brothers who had been favored, hadn't they? Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. They had this kind of favoritism. Don't play favorites with your kids. It leads to disaster. But the wonderful thing about Scripture is that God uses messed up family lives and messed up human situations to provide his plan of salvation. Even Abraham, the father of faith, pretends that his wife is his sister. And he, gets, he does that twice. These are sinful people who are being used by God. But the big thing to get from this whole story, in the story of Abraham, is that Abraham relates to God on the basis of faith again, just as Noah did. Noah had to have faith. Abraham has to have faith. In other words, it's not Abraham's righteousness, it's not his own ability to do good works that keeps him in relationship with God, it is his faith in God's promises. And there's the key verse from Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham could not be perfect for God, he couldn't possibly be that, so God said, we'll do it another way. If you believe my promises, Abraham, I will count that as righteousness in your life. And of course, Paul makes a big deal of that in the book of Romans, chapter 4 especially, that before the law ever came, before the Ten Commandments ever came, and Israel were told to work, work, work for God, to, to, to obey his laws, before that ever happened, God had already set out the principle of salvation through Abraham. Abraham believed. And we are a people who just need to believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Believe that Jesus Christ has fully obeyed the law on our behalf. When we believe in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us, Jesus' righteous life is applied to ours. We believe in God and God credits us with righteousness. He makes us perfect, makes us right in his sight, even though we're not. That's the beauty of the gospel. 
Anyway, I'm going to run along now. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You know how that happens, of course. The jealousy among the brothers um, who sell Joseph into slavery. That's how he gets down, comes down to Egypt. And there's a whole pile of stuff we're going to come to next week about how Joseph is a figure of Jesus Christ. There's so much about Joseph that's like Jesus Christ. He is rejected by his own. Um, he becomes the bread of life for the Egyptians. He, the whole world comes to him for salvation. His brothers repent before him. The whole world bows down before him. So much about Joseph who is catapulted from shame in prison to glory at Pharaoh's right hand. So much of that is Jesus in technicolor. You know, that's why the Old Testament is so beautiful, foreshadowing Christ. But anyway, Joseph comes down to Egypt. He basically saves the, uh, saves the Egyptians from famine. He also saves his own brothers and father who have to come to him. And you know that whole story because Andrew Lloyd Webber's told us it in the beautiful musical. And um, they all come down to Egypt. Joseph settles them in Egypt. And the people of Israel are in Egypt, just a small family. Um, Jacob and his sons. Jacob, Jacob and sons, as the song would go. They're down in Egypt and there are about 70 of them. And they're there for 400 years. So there's a big gap of 400 years. The Bible just tells us what we need to know, not everything we want to know. And by the time Exodus opens, of course, there's a new pharaoh in town. He doesn't like these Jews, these Israelites. They're getting too numerous now. There are hundreds of them. There are thousands of them. And he thinks if these guys really start picking up knives, they could pick a war with us and we could be in trouble. So Pharaoh starts to subjugate the Israelites into slavery and they're whipped and they're beaten. And these people, the Israelites, they have this vague idea that there is a God out there, a God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they cry out to God, this God, for rescue. And little do they know that as they're crying out to God, God is providing the Savior. Moses, who will have the unique birth, of course, um, Pharaoh wants to kill all the children under two. Moses sails down the river in his little basket. It's amazing how many times that the story of the Bible is, is hanging by a thread, you know? The Savior is hanging by a thread. You can see this little basket weaving about in the water with this little baby inside, helpless little baby. And it just so happens, it just so happens that the princess from the palace, Pharaoh's own daughter, picks Moses up. That's what his name means, Moses, lifted up, lifted up from the river. And Moses gets this unique education, this unique background in, in the Egyptian palace, which serves him well when he later leads God's people. Probably in his early years, he begins to discover that he is Jewish by blood, so he, he favors these Israelite people who he sees being oppressed. And, of course, he tries to take the salvation of his people into his own hands. And you can never do it that way. And he sees this Jew being abused by this Egyptian. And he goes and kills the Egyptian. And he thinks, great, they're going to take me as their leader now. Not a bit of it. Who are you, Moses, to lead us? And, of course, Pharaoh finds out about it. So Moses is a fugitive. Here's God's savior. He's a murderer. God's savior is a murderer. And he's out there in Midian in the desert. He sees this bush which is burning but doesn't seem to be being burned up. He draws closer to the side. He hears this voice coming, Moses, Moses, take your sandals from off your feet for the place you're standing is holy ground. I am Yahweh. And uh, this name Yahweh becomes very important. In Genesis 1, God is called Elohim, which is the general generic name for God, any God, anywhere. Yahweh is God's personal name. It's the name of personal relationship. And God introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh. The, the verb literally means in Hebrew, I am who I am, or he is who he is. It's a strange kind of title, but it kind of points to the fact that God cannot be quantified. He is who he is. He is eternal. You cannot pin him down. You cannot make an idol to look like him. And God hates people making an idol to make him look like this or that. He is boundless. He is beyond all things. He is indescribable, as our song says. Yahweh. And Yahweh says to Moses, I want you to go back and uh, say to Pharaoh, set my people free. And Moses says, What? And uh, through a series of tests, God proves himself to Moses. Moses goes back to Pharaoh, and then we have the ten plagues. I am really rushing now. 
Um, ten plagues were basically, it's a battle between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the god of his superpower nation, Egypt. He is not letting those people go. Interestingly, at the beginning of the Exodus story, it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But as the story moves on, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Where the one starts and the other stops, I don't know. But as part of the Egyptian story, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart for his own purposes, for his own glory, because God is sovereign in these matters. And it's because of Pharaoh's obstinacy that God is able to display his wonders in Egypt. That's part of the story. And of course, we get to the last plague, the tenth plague, the devastating one, where God will touch even Pharaoh's own household, that his own firstborn son, along with all the Egyptian firstborn sons, will be killed as an act of judgment by God. And God's way of getting the Israelites out of Egypt is by taking a lamb, a pure lamb from their flock. Kill your lamb, Israelites. Take the blood of your lamb, put it on the doorposts of your home, and tonight, when the angel of death passes through Egypt, killing all the firstborn sons in the Egyptian household, when I see the blood of the pure lamb on your doorposts, I will pass over. I will pass over. There will be no judgment. Again, an animal sacrifice. And you see these themes coming again and again. An animal sacrifice, a pure lamb, pure animal sacrifice, appeases the wrath of God, and God's judgment passes over. The gospel's there, and we're, only, we're not even Exodus 15 yet. The gospel is so fully written already for us. And of course, Israel leaves Egypt in the middle of the night when Pharaoh discovers that his own son has been killed. He says, just get out of here, Moses, get out of here. And the people of Egypt end up giving all their jewels to the Israelites to get, just get out of here and never come back again. God then leads his people, pillar of uh, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Um, but he leads them in a strange way. Actually, the journey from Egypt to the promised land, Canaan, where they're meant to be going, should take about 40 days. And instead, it takes about 40 years. But God begins by taking, instead of taking the straight route up here, he takes them down here. This is God leading his people, but not leading his people in the obvious logical way. Um, Does that make sense in your life somehow? God does not lead his people in the most obvious logical way sometimes. He brings his people down to the sea. And of course, Pharaoh has a big mind change. He sends out all his armies, bring those Israelites back. They're good for our buoyant economy. And... uh, so, so you have the Israelites here with the sea in front of them. They cannot move anywhere. The Egyptian army are coming there with all their horses and chariots and all their, all their men. And uh, God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to stretch out your staff. And you can kind of see Cecil B. DeMille's movie. It's beautifully depicted in the movie, actually. Very biblically depicted. Moses sets out his staff on the waters. The waters open up. A wind blows and the waters open up. And the people of God walk through the waters of the sea to the other side. The Egyptian army come and say, whoa, the waters are opening. Well, we can go through as well. So they go through. And by the time every Egyptian soldier is in the middle of the waters, God says, Moses, put your staff out again. He puts a staff out again. The waters collapse. And Miriam takes her tambourine like a good 1980s worship leader. And she starts singing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. This is the great salvation story of the Old Testament that all the future prophets keep on pointing back again. Look at what the Lord did for us. He redeemed us from Egypt with the blood of the Lamb, and he brought us through the sea. And again, you can see the gospel so beautifully, because the gospel story in our lives is when we believe in the blood of the Lamb that is shed for us, and God's judgment passes over us, and then we come through the waters of baptism. And we become the people of God. And just as Israel was baptized into Moses, we are baptized into Jesus Christ and we become his people. And he then leads us to his promised land. Now, of course, that journey to the promised land um, took 40 years rather than 40 days because the people were moaning and grumbling. And uh, I know that we never do that today, of course. We never moan and grumble against God. And, of course, they moaned because they didn't have bread and they didn't have water. 
And they were in a desert scenario. God does not lead his people through easy places because he wants us to be dependent on him. He brings us to crisis moments often because he wants us to be dependent on him. In fact, God says to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. Do you know how how a mother eagle trains her little babies? The mother eagle will grab the little baby by the nape of the neck like that and lift it up in the sky and then will just let the baby drop. The baby's going, ah, falling to the ground, and then the mother eagle will swoop down, pick the baby up again, take him to a higher height, and let him drop again. Ah, and the mother, mother eagle will pick him up again until the baby can learn to flap their own wings. That's exactly what God does in our lives. He will bring us through difficult times. He will bring us through crisis moments so that we will learn to live our lives in dependence on him, but learn how to walk for ourselves in faith in God. Interestingly, a Christian leader said to me a little while ago, he says, the older I get in the Christian life, the less clear God's guidance becomes. The older I get in the Christian life, the less clear God's guidance becomes. Why? Because God begins to trust us as mature Christians that we will find his path. He brings us out on eagle's wings, gives us a lot to begin with, and then lets us go. We've got a baby in the house in a minute, 24-7, 24-7, I can tell you. It's feeding, eating, you know, you can never lay Nathan out of your hands, practically lay him down on a chair for five minutes. It's, wah, cries the house down. In five years, if that's still happening, we're in trouble. <laughs> you know, and little by little, it's raising your children to go their, their way, hopefully clinging to God and following God, but, but God's guidance becomes less, less specific, less great the older we get as Christians. He trusts us to make our way in his grace. Anyway, 40 long years they spend in the wilderness. Um, God judges his people. In fact, all of them are killed in the wilderness for their disobedience to God. God takes sin among his people doubly seriously. Um, And of course, we have that famous story, don't we, where God sends snakes to his people because they're grumbling so much and the snakes bite his people and they're dying there with the poison creeping through their bodies. And what's the way of salvation this time when they cry out to God? God says to Moses, I want you to put up a bronze snake the very thing that bit them. I want you to put up a bronze snake in the desert, Moses, and, and if everybody, if they're, if they're just dying of this poison, this, this poison's creeping through their bodies, they're just, if they just take a look at the bronze snake, they'll be saved, and I will send my healing power through their whole bodies. And, and Jesus in John 3, um, as the snake was lifted in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so who, that whoever just looks at him with a look of faith says, Jesus, I, I just believe in my sinful state, my, the wreckage of my life, I just believe that you died for me. And God's healing power is released through our whole lives. See how beautifully the gospel comes and we're not even out of, well, that's numbers actually, so we'll be a bit further on. But basically the story is 40 years of wilderness grumblings and mumblings until the people of Israel come to the edge of the promised land. And this is a new generation now for the old generation has died away. And the new generation led by Joshua and Caleb, Caleb, one of my favorite guys in scripture, you know, kept on having faith no matter how old he got, kept on taking hills for God. But uh, basically it's time to take the promised land now. And of course God's military strategy is different to everybody else's. They come to Jericho and the way to defeat Jericho and its tall walls is by walking around them once each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. And then when you've walked around it the seventh time, blow your trumpets and the walls will come down. Simple, isn't it? But there's so much in these Old Testament wars about we've got to do it God's way, not our way. And I've got so many church growth books in my study, which are, you know, here's lots of different ways to grow your church and build your church. And they seem not to mention prayer. And they seem not to mention, let's seek God's face for these things. 
And it's God's way, not our way. And the Old Testament keeps on showing us that. But basically the story of Joshua is a story of victory, military victory after military victory, as God empowers his people to take the promised land. And they're in the promised land. Everything seems cushy. It seems that they've taken over the promised land by the end of Joshua, but that is not the case. Because in the beginning of Judges, there's still a lot of land to be taken. And this is an interesting thing. And it's a picture of our discipleship, if you like. Because God has given the land to the people. Every tribe has his own inheritance that he's then got to take. So there's God gifts the land to the people, but the people then have to take it. It's kind of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God wants us to take the land he has already given us. Okay? And of course, throughout Judges, Israel are just a mess. They do not take the land. They allow these foreign people, the Canaanites, to live among them who bring their false gods there. Um, Israelites get caught up in false gods. And then, of course, God makes these enemies come and, and, and wipe them out. And the, the people cry out to God again and again for a deliverer when they're under oppression. God sends them a deliverer, 13 deliverers. In fact, 13 judges. We've been doing the book of Judges. And uh, the judge comes and saves the people for a short period of time. They all follow God for a little while. Then they get back into their apostasy again. It's a, it's a vicious circle. It's again and again this sign that the people of Israel are sinful. And no matter what laws God gives them, no matter how he tells them to walk in his footpaths, they cannot do it. They're like a bowling ball that's constantly veering off in the wrong direction because they're like all of us. The wages of sin is death and we all have this sin nature within us. Israel's just a model for the rest of the world. And so by the end of the book of Judges... Um, the nation is in moral decline. It's all every tribe doing their own thing. And some of the things that they're doing are just ghastly. And there's this big cry at the beginning of Samuel for a king. We need a king. Now God wanted his people to have a king. But the people wanted a king for bad motives. They wanted a king to be trendy. To be like the other nations. And the whole reason behind Israel is that Israel is to be different to the other nations. Israel was to display the glory and beauties of God and what it means to live under God's rule to the rest of the world so that the rest of the world would be drawn to. Israel did exactly the reverse. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be trendy and have their trendy king leading their trendy army out into trendy warfare. But, so God says, I'm going to give you your king. I don't like the fact why you want a king. I'm going to give you your king. He's going to be Saul. He's going to be a king in your image. And of course, Saul, he looks good. He's a tall guy, um, handsome and all this kind of thing. Um, but he's compromised, spiritually compromised. And he doesn't do what Samuel tells him. Samuel tells him to wipe out a village. Saul says he's wiped out the village, but Samuel famously says, is that not the sound of sheep I can hear in the distance? You haven't wiped them out. You have not obeyed the word of God. And so Saul um, becomes rejected as king. God sends an evil spirit to him so that God can choose his king. The eyes of the Lord roam across the world, seeking those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. David was a man after God's own heart. God anoints David through the prophet Samuel at a private ceremony. That's just him and his family. But for the next few years, even though David knows he is king, he is rightful king of Israel and will be crowned king in the future, yet his life is full of persecution. He's chased left, right and center by the jealous Saul. And how true that is of our Christian lives, one day we're going to be crowned kings. If you've seen the C.S. Lewis books, Kings and Queens of Narnia, you know, kings and queens in the kingdom of God. God has made us kings and priests to serve him. But in this life, these are days full of toil and persecution and nobody recognizes us as the children of God. 1 John 2, 2 says that. Nobody recognizes, 1 John 3, sorry, says that. Nobody recognizes us as the children of God. Finally, of course, Saul and Jonathan are killed in the battle. David mourns over them, but now his way is open to become king of Israel. And this is the golden era for Israel. David is a man after God's own heart. He defeats all his surrounding enemies. He reads the law of God day and night. He writes all his psalms. And he's leading the people in righteousness. And the pe you start to think, is this the Messiah? Is this the son of Abraham? 
who will bring blessings to all the nations of the earth? Is this the one who will make Israel into a great kingdom? Is this the Messiah? And then, of course, one day, David decides not to go out to battle, decides to take it easy like Adam had done in the Garden of Eden, and he's strolling on his balcony. It's the peachy moonlight, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. He takes her. He rapes her, and uh, then basically her, gets her husband back from the battlefield to try and cover up the sin that he's done. He breaks just about all of the Ten Commandments, apart from keeping the Sabbath day. He breaks nine of the Ten Commandments, and get, basically gets Uriah murdered. He brings Uriah home, of course, and says, Uriah, go and sleep with your wife. Uriah says, no. He gets Uriah drunk. Uriah, go and sleep with your wife. No. Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. So anyway, David has to take drastic measures, gets Uriah to the front line of the army. He is killed. David says, oh dear, oh dear, this is what happens in war. Gets on with his life until the prophet Nathan comes. That's a great name, isn't it, Nathan? And Nathan says, David, you are the man. And David acknowledges his sin before God. In a, in a sense, David has been a greater sinner than Saul. But the reason why David continues in his kingship is because David's a greater repenter than Saul. And he gets on his hands and knees, Psalm 51. I acknowledge my transgressions, O God, and my sin is ever before me. David keeps his throne, but his son Absalom, there will be judgment for sin, even for Christians. David's son Absalom leads a rebellion against him, which forces David out of his castle. David has to go wandering across the Kidron Valley, weeping as he goes, just as 1,000 years later, the son of David, Jesus Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane will weep because he has been rejected by his own. And uh, eventually Absalom is killed, and David weeps over his own son Absalom. Absalom, my son, would that I could have died instead of you. But there's only one person who can die instead of us, and that will be David's greater son, Jesus So David keeps his throne, and his son is Solomon, and Solomon becomes a glorious king. And again we ask, is Solomon the Messiah? Because people from all the nations of the earth are coming. Queen of Sheba is coming and saying, Solomon, you've got marvelous wisdom, you've got these beautiful temples, everything is wonderful. But then Solomon has the same weakness as his father. He marries lots of wives. I mean, how he had time for them all, I never know, but he marries lots of wives. They bring their false gods into the temple. Um, Basically, Israel gets into syncretism. They get into false worship. uh, God says to Solomon, I'm going to take... I'm going to rip your kingdom away from you. And Israel's divided. And from that time on, there are two kings. There is Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. The north becomes Israel. The south becomes Judah. I'm having to really rush here. The nation is broken up. And every king from then on, in both north and south, every king is evil. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again and again, one and two kings, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Apart from two kings in the south, Josiah and Hezekiah, who were righteous kings, briefly called revival, briefly brought the people back to revival. But basically, it's a downward spiral. And this is the time during the decline of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, that God sends the prophets to say, I'm going to take you into captivity. And in 721 BC, the northern kingdom Israel is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into captivity by the Babylonians. It is captivity. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, we wept as we remembered Zion. And the nation of Judah stays in captivity for 70 years. The northern kingdom of Israel is just banished. The ten tribes are banished. They are out of it. Judah is the line that will lead to Messiah. Judah is preserved during 70 years of captivity in Babylon where people like Daniel are prophesying, Ezekiel is prophesying, and so on. And finally, God overthrows Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, basically the, the Babylon throne. And a new guy comes to town, Cyrus, king of Persia. He allows the Israelites to return to their home The Israelites return to Judah, but they're beleaguered now. They're just a small group of people, just a remnant. And people like um, Malachi, the last prophets of the Old Testament, they say, people, the days, the golden days of David and Solomon can be restored. There will be a coming Messiah. 
this coming king will come and restore the glories of Israel and all the nations of the earth will still be blessed. But you've got to return to God, people. And these people, as they came back to beleaguered Judah, they were spending time in their own houses, building their own houses, building their own vineyards. And the prophets come and say, stop working on your own houses, your own financial security, build the house of God. And if you look after the things of God and the priesthood of God, that's how God is going to bless your lives. And at the end of the Old Testament, we're left waiting. Waiting with this kind of beleaguered group of returnees from captivity, waiting for the Messiah to come and waiting for the hope of Israel to arrive, Jesus Christ, but he won't come for another 400 years.